This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Monday matinees begin right here on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Audio drama in the age of Arthur. TheTableRound.com The immortal legends of the Table Round, of the war with Rome. The great Julius Caesar himself invaded Britain, and for over two centuries the men of Rome lorded across the Isles from the cliffs of Dover to Hadrian's Wall in the north. And then, facing threats in the distant east, the Roman legions left Britain's shores, existing now only as a shadow, a broken wall or remains of a road, eclipsed by the reign of Arthur. Letter from Sir Ector at York to Sir Baldwin at Winchester. Baldwin, my dear friend, the king needs your aid immediately. It was a very eventful winter court, to say the least. The king was feasting at York, and there came a procession of twelve men. Eleven carried an olive branch, and the last carried a standard of the Eagle of Rome, SPQR and all, as if they had stepped out of the age of Caesar. We were shocked when the leader of the group read a proclamation. I have included a copy with this dispatch, but to sum it up, they demanded tribute for Rome. They claimed to represent the Emperor Lucius. I didn't even know there still was an emperor in Rome, let alone that they remembered our humble island after fleeing generations ago. You may hear that Gawain, the king's nephew, did not make a noble showing of himself. There is some truth to that, sadly. To be blunt, He picked up one of the Romans by the neck, pinned him against a wall, and threatened to carve Arthur is King into his forehead and mail his head back to Rome. It was, perhaps, bad manners. Arthur settled that down and sent the diplomats away unharmed and with all honors due envoys. Then a high council was called. King Anguish of Ireland and King Ban of Brittany whispered to Arthur that not only was tribute not due, but kings of Britain had held the throne of Rome, and in fact Rome should pay tribute to him. So it was decided. It is to be war. Even now, ships gather to march towards Rome. It will be a glorious thing, the first time ever mobilizing an army of these United Kingdoms. The king has decreed you and his cousin Constantine shall govern Britain while he is away. Ask Sir Cador of the time Ambrosius left me in command of the castle at Sandwich. It has a fine moral. I would relate the tale, but am running out of parchment. Good luck. Hector of Forest Sauvage. Letter from Queen Guinevere to King Arthur at Dover. Artis, I sent messengers to try and catch you at Dover, but you had already sailed. Perhaps this will be one more reason for you to hurry back, because by midwinter 
you will have a son. Oh, Artis, I am so happy. Soon Melora will be walking and our little prince is on his way. This does something to assuage my loneliness at your absence. Each day I light a candle for you in the chapel. I know that the life of a king is not the life of a normal man. But if you take too much time invading Burgundy or Gaul or the Ostrogoth, you will be missing the joys you so richly deserve at home and hearth. Love, your Gwen. Letter from Sir Tristan in Ireland to King Arthur in Brittany. I leave for a little while and you invade Europe without me. Here I am, in my sickbed in the middle of a barbaric Ireland, and I have to hear it as gossip from some serving wench that the whole of the round table, except, of course, Sir Tristan, are off to punish heathens or, or conquer Lombardy or something. The point is, bad form, your majesty. Bad form. It is worth telling that I succeeded in finding a wife for my uncle, King Mark of Cornwall. Do you recall that dragon that was wandering around Ireland, killing and burning all the Irish? Well, the King of Ireland offered the hand of his youngest daughter, Isolde, to whoever could take care of it. Well, uncle Mark is too old and has the gout, and I surely didn't want to marry any bucktoothed, barefoot Irish princess, but I could slay the dragon, win her, and give her hand to Uncle Mark, cementing peace between Ireland and Cornwall, and so on and so on. I was hunting for the dragon somewhere near the Cork and Kerry Mountains, and came across the massive beast burning down a monastery with its fiery breath. I produced my sword, stood and delivered a mighty blow. It was a struggle for the ages, but I suffered only a pair of wicked slashed from its claws before burying my blade in its eye. Ha! In all the years it took to become a knight, I learned horsemanship, falconry, dancing, heraldry, swordplay, archery, tactics, harping, theology, but at no point did anyone bother to teach me the simple fact that a dragon's claws are venomous. Not once! It would have been helpful, because as I celebrated my victory, I suddenly collapsed in the mud, succumbing to the poison. When I awoke, I was in bed, being tended to by, and my apologies to Her Highness the Queen, the most beautiful woman I have ever seen. So pale, and eyes so blue, I figured I'd died and she was an angel. She'd pulled me back from the brink of death and gently ministered to me for days as I was in fever. The funny part is, it turns out she was the Irish princess, Isolde, and she'd found me dying next to the dead dragon. She was all kindness and goodness until she cleaned my sword for me. You see, th there's the nick in the blade, and I lost a bit of it fighting the Irish champion, the Morholt, last year. A bit of steel got left in his skull when I cleaved his helmet in half. Well, the princess saw the nick in the blade, and she had the missing bit of steel with her, because it turns out Morholt was her betrothed. And she got the bit of steel from my sword when I sent his head back to her in a basket. So she put the shard next to my sword, saw they fit, and knew how I was. She wasn't happy. In troth, she tried to kill me. Had to be restrained. Kept shouting curses at me in Gaelic. Swore endless bloody vengeance. It was quite the scene. But a deal is a deal. And the King of Ireland commanded her to cease all that nonsense, settle down, and come back with me to Cornwall. In a fortnight, I'll take the princess and drop her at my uncle's castle and leave this whole ugly mess behind me. 
I'll be waiting for you and Camelot when you return, and hope to never hear the name Isolde again. Your loyal knight, Tristan of Cornwall. Letter from the Lady Enid to the King Arthur at Mont Saint Michel. I am so sorry, Your Majesty. This letter bears ill tidings. At midnight on the first of the month, the Queen began birthing your child. It went all through the night and the rest of the day until the sun set again. It was very difficult. Vivian and I were at his side the entire time. Sir Rector and the Archbishop were in the next room. They never left. I'm not certain you will understand, but the baby was being born backwards. This happens sometimes, and it's dangerous to the child and the mother. During the night, Her Highness said that if there was a choice to save the baby or her, we were to save the baby. That choice never came. The Lady Vivian did all she could, but the child was not born alive. It would have been a son. Queen Guinevere has not left her bed since. Her injuries were substantial. Lady Vivian says she is healing, but that it would help if she would eat. The Princess Melora does not understand why her mother won't see her. Be safe, Your Majesty. We pray every day for your victory and quick return home. Camelot needs you. Your servant, Lady Enid of Lelute. Letter from King Arthur to the Lady Vivian at Camelot. Vivian, I write this letter to you in hope that you know where Merlin, renowned reader of dreams, and my absent advisor is to be found. If you do not, I ask that you help me. In my sleep, as I lay in my chamber, I dreamed a dream, and I am very uneasy from it. I dreamed that I had been put high up on a wheel. I sat on a mighty throne, Excalibur in one hand, an orb of gold in the other. Around the spokes of this wheel were other thrones, and men in them were held tight in place by golden chains. I do not know how, but I recognized them all. There was Hector of Troy and Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar all enthroned, and I saw Joshua and Judah Maccabee and David, king of Israel. At the bottom of this wheel, some were held in their thrones upside down, submerged into a pool of dark water. I looked out from the apex and could see from that height all the world from Iceland to Rome and even to the Holy Land. Tell me what this means. I must be focused on my advance to Rome. My armies cannot afford for me to be distracted with total victory so near, and yet it continually seeps into my waking mind. Arthur Rex. Letter from the Lady Vivian to King Arthur at the Siege of Metz. High King, your daughter is well and your wife is healing. Some months back Merlin awoke in a state, 
frothing at the mouth, gibbering about bears and dragons, and without a stitch of clothing on, he ran out into the woods of Caledonia, and has not been seen since. Oh, this has happened before, for a whole summer once, hidden like a wild animal, he remained buried in the woods, found by no one, and forgetful of himself and his kindred. But when winter came, and took away all the grass, and the fruit of the trees, and he had nothing to live on, he returned. Filthy and spouting prophecy. As for this dream of yours, King of Britain, you might have a strand of prophecy in you yourself. You dream of fate, monstrous and empty, a whirling wheel. You are not the first king nor the greatest to be on the wheel of fortune. One goes down, demeaned, another is carried to the height. Far too high up sits the king at the summit, but let him beware ruin. For the wheel turns ceaselessly. Think of this, Arthur the Conqueror, for thus does fortune's wheel turn treacherously, and out of happiness bring men to sorrow. Dispatch from General Riathamus to the Emperor Lucius. It is reported that before our arrival, Artus strode around the walls of the besieged city of Metz without armor, challenging anyone in the city to stop him. I assumed his hubris would make it easy to crush him between my legion and the city walls. I was in error. There was a marsh of no great extent between our army and that of the enemy. Battle commenced by cavalry action. The legendary Knights of Camelot vexed and outfought the knights from Genoa on all fronts. Artus, seeing the skirmish proving favorable, hastened with his inner circle of knights to the River Ains, which was behind our camp. The Britons forded the river there, that they might storm our fortifications and cut off the bridge. Now we were the ones being crushed. Artus and his companions behind us, and the bulk of the army led by his war chief Duloc ahead. The garrison at Metz refused to reinforce us, too afraid of what they saw on the field. Metz surrendered that evening. I fled the field with all the men I could gather together and came to the Burgundian, still allied to Rome. This high king of Britannia tasks us and now holds Gaul by his own right. Do not underestimate Artus. There is ice in his eyes and iron in his heart. Letter from Sir Grifflet to his mother at Dalriada. Mother, when I left Dalriada, I told you I wanted to see the glory of Camelot. Well, now your boy has crossed the Alps. After a successful skirmish against Roman mercenaries, I was in a group of knights led by Sir Lancelot to escort the prisoners back to the fort. But... Our company was ambushed by a Roman legion, reinforced with Saracens. Real Saracens, from far Libya. We were outnumbered, but I was never afraid. They were like sheep, and I fought on the side of Lancelot, a lion among men. And we were aided by a Saracen. The Saracen Palamedes defected to serve Arthur, the noblest king on earth. We returned to the fort just in time to see the final moments of a battle. They too had been attacked, 
and in the center of the field, surrounded by the knights of the table round on one side, and a Roman legion on the other, was King Arthur facing off with a fierce-looking man I learned was none other than that Emperor Lucius. We all watched as the two most powerful men in all the world did battle. But as I knew he must, Arthur was victorious and Lucius was slain. When they saw that, all the Romans fled. Arthur had the body put in the finest casket and sent back to Rome. He said, this is my only tribute. Now we march towards Rome. I had no idea the world was so wide. Your son, Grifflet. Letter from Sir Lancelot to Queen Guinevere at Camelot. My queen, we have reached the Holy See. I wish you, a noble daughter of Roman blood, could walk this great city. I have knelt before the throne of St. Peter. I have stood in the shadows of the ruined pillars of the temples to the old Roman gods. It is as glorious as they say. When we reached the walls of Rome... We prepared to assault the city in one final battle to end this campaign. Then came out a duchess, and the countess, with many ladies and demoiselles, and kneeling before King Arthur, begged him for the love of gold to receive the city, and not to take it by assault, for then should many guiltless be slain. They wept, promising to be his subjects forever, and yield to him homage and fealty for the lands. All the senators that were left alive, and the noblest cardinals that then dwelt in Rome, besought Arthur to give a license for six weeks for to assemble all the Romans, and then to crown him the new emperor on Christmas Day. And at the day appointed, the king was crowned by the Pope's hand, with all the royalty of Europe watching. Ah, I wish Maldui so full had been with us on this journey. For my simple words cannot describe the grandeur of the colonization. Banners as far as the eye could see, and rows of kings kneeling to see the crown placed on the head of Otto, lord of all Christendom. We sojourned there a time, and established all his lands from Rome into France, and gave lands and realms unto the loyal servants and knights. Then all the most trusted knights gathered before the new emperor, and beseeched him to return homeward. And says the king, To tempt God it is no wisdom. We will not seek to rule the world. Let us collect the homage that is due to Britain, and return we to Camelot. We begin our journey homeward. With this letter I have sent a wagon of the finest cloth of the Adriatic Seas, for dresses for the Princess Melora, who must be walking by now. I remain your most faithful servant. That's a lot to lock. Hello, this is Dave Morgan, and I played Riotimus. Riotimus was a 5th century Romano-British general and is one of several candidates for a historical basis of King Arthur. From surviving Roman documents, it is known that Riodimus crossed the Channel to Gaul to defend the Empire from the Visigoths, 
where he was betrayed by the Prefect of Gaul and vanished from history. His connection to Arthur stemmed from Geoffrey of Monmouth's account of Arthur invading Gaul. This and the conjecture that Riodimus was not a name, but in fact a title that might be translated as High King, is why Riodimus has been put forward as a candidate for a real King Arthur. The Riodimus in our story today had no basis in history or literature. Written by Morgan Z. Sowell. Produced by Lindsay Smith. Featuring David Kendall as Hector, Kathy Vargas as Guinevere, Jackson Trent as Tristan, Chandler Warpole as Arthur, Sonny Asadi as Vivian, Dave Morgan as Riathamus, TJ Lloyd as Grifflet, and Joshua Kibbe as Lancelot. Original music by Nicola Branch, featuring the music of Mac Wilson. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. Your narrator was Nicola Branch. Hello, this is Morgan Sowell, and for the last 25 chapters, it has been my pleasure to write The Table Round. We could not produce this show without the exceptional talents of our wonderful cast, and here's to another 125 episodes. If you enjoy The Table Round, please take a moment, share it with a friend. Maybe that auntie of yours who doesn't know how to use a smartphone, or that old English Don who could use it being burnt to a CD. Or even just take a moment to share us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or the podcasting app of your choice. For the last 25 chapters, it has been our pleasure to dive into these immortal legends. Thank you for listening. You're tuned into Monday Matinee on the Mutual Audio Network. Tomorrow is all things horror on Tuesday Terrors. Subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed for every day. Or find Tuesday Terrors in your favorite podcast players. The Mutual Audio Network, listening and imagining together.